Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and it is The Stacks Book Club Day. The wonderful Michael Denzel Smith, author of Stakes is High, is back to help us break down our June book club pick. It's The Undying, a meditation on modern illness by Anne Boyer. We talk today about the cancer industrial complex, the sexism associated with breast cancer, and the ways that form and content can work together or be at odds with one another in storytelling. There are no spoilers on today's episode. Be sure to listen all the way until the end of the show to hear our July book club pick. Are you looking for a way to support the work of the stacks? Well, I have just the thing for you. It's called Patreon. It's a website that lets you contribute monthly to my work and in turn earn my unending gratitude and inside access to the show. For just $5 a month, the cost of one very fancy coffee, you have access to our monthly virtual book clubs where we all get together and talk about our Stacks book club pick. You also earn shout outs on the show, discounts on merch, and mostly you get to know that your money is making the show possible every single week. So come join the Stacks pack at patreon.com slash the Stacks. I'd like to give a special thank you to our newest members, Marianne Murphy, Valerie Schneider, Natalie Aiken, Allison Pfeffer, Ezra Rahima, Jill Ford, Jacqueline Ballantyne, Mary Monslav, Melissa Nix, and Francis Node. Thank you all so much for your generosity. Okay, now it's time for my conversation with Michael Denzel Smith about The Undying by Anne Boyer. All right, everybody, it is the Sax Book Club Day. I am back with the wonderful Michael Denzel Smith. Michael, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me again. I'm so happy you're here, especially to talk about The Undying um, by Anne Boyer that you picked. So usually I go back and forth with authors on the book, but (laughs) you said you wanted to do this. And I did a quick Google search and I was like, yes, we're going to do it. And I didn't know like anything else. And I'm really glad you picked it. I guess let's start there. What made you think this would be a good book for book club? So... Uh, I think I bought the book as so many of us do. We like buy a book when it first comes out or we first hear about it and then it sits for a little while. Mm-hmm. You know, the problem of every sort of book nerd is that you have way too many books in the to be read pile yes. <laughs> to actually get to. Um, and then it like won the Pulitzer and I was still like, oh yeah, I need to read that. And like, I'd heard so many amazing things about it. Uh 
but then I finally, uh, some advice I got from uh, a friend when I started teaching was to assign at least one book per semester that you want to read, but haven't gotten around to. So it'll make you read it. Uh, and so I, this past semester, uh, assigned to my students The Undying and we read it. And then you and I were talking about, you know, book club and all that. And I was like, oh, well, I just read The Undying. So <laughs> that, that'll be easy. Um, and and I think part of the reason, though, is not just like laziness and being like, oh, that's a book that I just read, uh, but the impact that it then had on me and sort of thinking through a lot of stuff that I've just not thought about or taken for granted. You know, the book is a, it's a memoir of Ann Boyer's uh, diagnosis and treatment and living through uh, breast cancer which she positions herself in the very beginning in the sort of literary canon of breast cancer uh, memoirs and journals alongside like a Susan Sontag or an Audre Lorde. Um, but what she's really doing here in telling this story is an expo expose in a number of ways of the breast cancer industry, right? right? Like in right. the giving giving us an idea of it as its own industry, not just from, you know, uh, the medical health side, uh, but also the non world that crop, that crops up uh, around it and the, the faux activism that happens around breast cancer. And from the beginning all the way through her examination of these uh, institutions, one, there's just this building rage at the systems at play um, and uh, a forced examination on the part of the reader, I think, because of the position that breast cancer sort of occupies within the collective imagination where, you know, and, and Boyer gets at this, the pinkwashing of it, right? right? The idea of the valiant breast cancer survivor of, you know, the the very language around that we use around fighting breast cancer right. and like warriors and all of this stuff and the forgetting or the not even forgetting, but unacknowledgement or uh, casting aside the, the humanity of the people who are experiencing it and the, the idea that they do experience it and their experiences don't fit the neat narrative that we have around exactly what I just described, this sort of like, oh yeah, I'm a tough woman because it mostly affects women. Um, but, and, and that, you know, there's a community that like rallies behind it. And then, you know, every October you can see stuff like the NFL wearing pink. And oh my all God, such an eye roll. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> but, you know, what about the experience of someone who lives through it, lives through the diagnosis, lives through the isolation, lives through the deterioration of relationships or, you know, just basic human desires for touch and love and all of that. And then what effects do the treatments have on your body? What are you thinking about when, if you learn like Boyer does, and we can get into all of this, the environmental impacts of the the treatment that you're receiving right. 
the like financial cost. And then on the other side of it, when you do survive, how you're forgotten, right? <laughs> right? Like, right. and how, unless you sort of like uh, mold yourself into the perfect survivor that then is like touted around and put into the nonprofit industry as a mascot and emblem of everything that they've wanted to, to sell to people in order to keep the nonprofit industry right. going. There's just so much here that I think, you know, in terms of my my own work and my own sort of attractions to different work, it's like, what systems do we live under and how are those systems failing us? And this is, you know, is very particular to the breast cancer survivors and patients. But I think, you know, it's, you, it's, we're able to extrapolate out and just sort of think about all of the things in which we all of the narratives that we tell, particularly around illness um, and and wondering, like, what are the effects on the people that actually go through it? Right. Right. Well, thank you all for listening. Michael just did the entire book in like five minutes. <laughs> and that was an amazing episode of the podcast. I'm going to go take a nap. No, I mean, you really touched on like all of the things I want to talk about today in detail. Mm -hmm. This is sort of more of a cursory question, but I always ask people this. generally. What did you think of the book? You know, I, it was a little slow going, honestly, in the beginning of the book. Yes. Uh, I, I wasn't, I wasn't taken by it initially. Um, it took me a while to sort of see exactly where Boyer was going in the mm. way that she was building the narrative, right? Um, I jumped into it. What I'd heard so much of was just like, Boyer's command of language and like being really amazing on the sentence level. And I wasn't getting a whole lot of that in, at the start, mm -hmm. but what, you know, I, what I liked about it later and then sort of loved about it afterward is one, the, the construction of it, she's sort of building this crescendo of anger. Right. Mm -hmm. And then it sort of drops off and then becomes a little more, uh, formally inventive she's a poet and then she's sort of like playing with that right and then also at the end kind of walking you through the writing process I mean she does that throughout the book but there's a lot there in terms of like what does it mean to be writing a memoir what does it mean to be writing through the pain writing through and, right. and like the fog of her own sense of like uh of her own brain uh, as she's attempting to make sense and make meaning out of all of this, and then also do this uh, critique of an industry that doesn't come under much scrutiny. So I think there there are so many different elements at play that like you have to give it a little time to build. And, and you know, you, you have to have a little patience or maybe a grasp you and at the very at the it outset. Didn't. I really struggled with, it's interesting because in the epilogue, she has this part where she's like, if this book is successful in any way, it will be because of who I am and what I went through and being a survivor. And it will have nothing to do with the form of the book. Mm -hmm. And that line really stuck out to me because I struggled so much with the form. I actually mm -hmm. don't think that the form was the best part of the book. And I think she was kind of saying that in a way that maybe she felt like the form was great and like she was proud of kind of because it's it's kind of funky. Like mm -hmm. it's like these almost like vignettes yeah. on a topic. And so 
to me, I just couldn't get, I couldn't get into it. And so I eventually switched to the audiobook actually, mm. because I was really struggling with focusing and like wanting to keep reading it off the page. And the audiobook really helped, but I, I do think I missed some things. Cause when I was going back to prepare for this, I was like trying to find sections and I was like, mm. I don't remember that sentence mm-hmm. at all. Like, I don't remember that. Um, but the content I think was extraordinary. I mean, you laid mm. out so much of what's impressive about the book and it's a short book. And because of the form, there's even less words than a normal 250 page book or whatever. (laughs) Like it's not, there's not that much text. Like she really crams a lot in. And what I found to be really impressive is that the book is highly emotional. Like I think she's tapping Mm. into the, not emotional, like hysterical woman, but I mean, emotional, like she's tapping into the reader's emotions and she's Mm. tapping into different, the different feelings of what she's going through, but she's also bringing like data and dates Mm -hmm. and history and she's also bringing art and so for the sheer amount of tech richness in the text Mm -hmm. for such few words and for so few pages like that was really impressive to me um and I also really liked the way that she led me to question the way that we do things that really don't make sense that I'd never stop to think Mm -hmm. about and I think some of that is like um I don't know if you've ever if you listen to the episode of the Ezra Klein show with Tressie McMillan Cottam and they talk about how like disability it's not a matter of if you're going to be disabled but when and that kept coming in through my mind as I was reading this and the privileges that I've had of being a healthy able-bodied person so far in my life that I didn't Mm -hmm. have to think about a lot of these things and I kept being like fuck I am not a good, like, I'm not, not that I, not that I'm an ally, but like that I'm not even considering the ways that other people navigate the world because of the privileges that I hold in, in that, in that world, in the world of disability Mm -hmm. and health. Like I've been so lucky and I'm so grateful. But when she was talking about like getting dressed up and like wanting to be the best dressed person at chemotherapy. Like mm-hmm. I could relate to that. Of course that would be me if I ever went to chemo. Yeah. Like I would be like, Oh, I'm going to shower and like put on <laughs> makeup, but that's just not something that I've ever had to think about. And so I really appreciated that, this, that part of the book that there were so many things she made me at least take my brain to even for 30 words and to be yeah. like, Ooh, we need to think about that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the line between being a healthy person and sick person is so much thinner than most of us want to think about. And that, you know, exactly what you were saying about that, the conversation between Ezra Klein and Tressie McMillan Cottom, you know, it's we we think of these things as fixed categories mm-hmm. and we don't think of ourselves as the potential sick person, right? right. Uh, and that, you know, we can identify a sick person person and then we can treat them as such uh as if that's the only part of their existence and when when you think of when you then create a whole industry around that idea you know then you are ignoring a lot of the things that a sick person is telling you about their own emotional state about their own physical state because you're just you're fixated on the idea that this person has always been this and then they're they become an unreliable narrator and so what Anne Boyer is doing here is saying look I know you think that I'm an unreliable narrator like I and I'm telling you the reasons why 
you think that I'm an unreliable narrator and truly breaking down that psychology. And like the, like you're saying, the intellectual scope of this is massive, massive. within, you know, the, the few words that, that she's able to cram into all that. I'm curious what, uh, like in terms of formally, like what didn't work for you? I think it was too disjointed in the beginning. And so I just Mm -hmm. couldn't figure out what was happening. And so I would get distracted. I'm a super Uh easily distracted reader. And so if something isn't flowing and I'm not curious about the next page, I will check my phone 7,000 times Uh in six pages. Do you know what I mean? Like I just couldn't quite, in the beginning, it starts off with like, the stuff about Susan Sontag and her language is heightened. Like she's Mm -hmm. right. She's not writing. It's not like journal entries, like dear diary, what's up? I read Susan Sontag. It's like the movement of Sontag's cursive. And I'm like, I bitch, I don't know what that is. (laughs) Like, and so I think that that is what made me struggle. And also like, there's the, there's the paragraph breaks and then there's also like the page breaks. And so when you're when I was looking at it on the page, I couldn't quite figure out what was happening because usually those things are cues to me when I'm reading prose. And it's probably because she is a poet and they play so much with form on the page mm-hmm. that she was doing that same thing in her prose. But I think it was confusing me a little bit. Yeah, no, I get that. I, I totally because that that was an issue <laughs> I think I was having and sort of placing everything and I think that it was but eventually I think what I got was you know yes she was playing in the beginning and doing those things but that a a large chunk of the the book is a sort of linear narrative right like it just moves through oh I was diagnosed then I was treated right and then this is the post-treatment you know all of that and the dealings with you know her her financial situation, her employment situation, all of this stuff. And like, and, and I think, you know, that then Lynn, uh, you know, drops off and she's done telling the story um, that, you know, is imbued with all of her anger. Uh, and then she sort of, do, then she starts doing a little more even with the form Um to, and I think that the second half of that or last third of it or so is like even more so like out there in terms of like being disjointed and not necessarily following anything uh, from from a point A to point B. I think where I came to was like, yeah, in the beginning, this was difficult to follow because it like felt like there were digressions that, mm-hmm. you know, into like an art criticism and then like, like you know, that that felt like, oh, I'm not placing how these are related to one another. But then when it come when it ain't all came together, it was like what your what I felt like I was experiencing was not just the story of her breast cancer and breast cancer survival, but what it was like for her mm-hmm. to go through the fog, right? Yeah. And that the form is reflective of her own emotional and intellectual state at the time. Yeah. Whereas like things would come in pieces yeah. and that, that that's how she had to be able to think through it. Yeah. I think that that's right. I do think that what she was trying to do was to show sort of the disjointed nature of having 
such a terrifying diagnosis mm -hmm. and all of those things because I mean, she, she was diagnosed with uh, triple negative breast cancer. Yeah. And I think there were some other qualifying terms around that, but a very, very aggressive form of breast cancer that kills women or people who get it. Um, the younger they are, the more they die from it. And she was 41. And so I think that there's definitely like the trauma of mm -hmm. that shocking diagnosis. And I mean, she says like with cancer, um, I can't remember the exact quote, but she's talking about how it's like you all, you only feel sick once you get the diagnosis, but the day before mm -hmm. you felt totally fine, right? you know, unless, it, unless it's gotten really bad and it's gotten bad enough for you to feel, to go in because you feel sick, but like that the tumor was there. And then when you find out about it, all of a sudden the tumor hurts, you know, and I like, mm -hmm. and I think that that is definitely sort of what is happening in the form that she's like breaking it down to these, like, Oh, this reminds me of an art piece I saw. Speaking of art pieces, like that other book that I read, mm -hmm. But for me as a reader, it didn't it didn't work in execution as much mm -hmm. as it works in theory. Like I, yeah. I appreciate what she did, but I was like, I, I'm not getting this. Yeah. Which is why when I switched to audio, it was a little bit better because, you know, the reader takes a pause, but the reader doesn't take a pause that's like so long that I know it's a paragraph break or whatever, unless it's like a big one. And so mm -hmm. that helped me to feel the flow of more like almost like stream of consciousness, not exactly, yeah. but like that same kind of vibe. Um, and speaking of what you said, when people told you about the book that like the sentences and all of that stuff were so great. I mean, some of the sentences in this book are insanely incredible, like, yeah. and like the word choice. And I think that also probably comes from her being a poet. I feel like poets and word yeah. choice, like that's a huge part of the puzzle. Absolutely. But she has this sentence that she, when she's talking about, it's super short, but she's talking about in regards to the pain scale, like giving a number. Mm -hmm. And she says, sensation is the enemy of quantification. And I remember I heard that and I had to pause and like <laughs> rewind it and then write it down because I was like, wow, I don't know. Those words all make so much sense together. <laughs> <laughs> And like, yeah. she also does like some cool list stuff. Like when she lists mm -hmm. all the different ways, all the different things she's going to do with her hair when it falls off and like yeah. sending her yeah. eyelashes to her enemies and like, yeah. So like some of that stuff was really cool. And, and she, it seemed like she was enjoying playing with the form for sure. Definitely. I think there, there's a lot of sentences that I was impressed by, but I think also one of the things that really stuck out to me um, is when she's sort of describing going into that room where all of the, all of the other chemo patients are and exactly that moment that you're talking about with regard to like quantifying her mm -hmm. pain uh, and everyone's sort of like trying to tell how much it actually hurts and they're being told that no it's not, it's not with the needle with the big yeah. needle yeah and what she does there though is she never actually attempts to describe the pain itself like she resists metaphor or simile or anything that we would be, I think a lot of us are accustomed to. Right. She only describes the process right. and she only describes exactly what's happening there. And I think that she, like a lot of that is her, like her admission or sort of uh, grappling with the fact that like, you can't really describe pain to people and like make them understand it. 
Right. Like you, you go through it, but language fails you. Mm-hmm. Like you, you think that you're like capturing something that's relatable to, uh, to an audience, whether they be listening to you or, or reading your work, but everyone has their own different markers for what that experience might be. And she's very concise and deliberate in just sort of like saying, this is just what happens. Right. And so you can read into it yourself, like, what would my reaction to that be? And how painful might that experience be for me? And I think that placing a reader in that position was really masterful to me in that, like, she resists sensationalizing as she does so much of the book and just sort of being like, I'm not trying to convince you of the amount of pain that I was in. I'm just saying that you never, you wouldn't listen even if I attempted to. Right. Well, she also says in that section about how people tell you, you can't communicate pain or like that pain is like that's something that you experience but you can't communicate it and then she goes on to say except for that we do all the time like if someone Mm -hmm. pinches you you grimace and we all understand what that grimace looks like and there are ways to communicate pain that we all know but that there's some sort of um unwillingness to appreciate or understand or empathize with a with a cancer patient's pain Mm-hmm. for for some other reason right she doesn't necessarily yeah. say exactly why that is but that that is part of like the language of cancer is like oh we can't quantify pain except for with these numbers like we can't yeah. talk about it in any way except for on a scale of one to ten even though we all communicate pain constantly and you know if you walk past someone who's in pain or if someone stubs their toe, you know that there's pain, but like that this kind of pain we don't want to empathize with or engage with in any sort of meaningful way. And I think like to me, one of the big takeaways from the book is how much healthy people suck in relationship (laughs) to people who are sick. Like that was one of the things that I felt like at least that's what I felt like I was being told over and over. Like an example mm-hmm. is that same pain thing. It's like the doctors don't want to find a different way to have these conversations. It's like, no, you or the nurses in this case, like, no, the needle doesn't hurt. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, well, I'm telling you it does. And yeah. it's my arm and that needle's big and it's hurting me. And you're it's like, have me. you had this needle before? Right. You tell anyone right. That? Exactly. And it's like, and, and I just, just like the language i mean we definitely have to talk about sort of the language around quote unquote fighting cancer mm-hmm. um and for folks who have listened to this show before we did um the unwinding of the miracle by julie williams i believe was her last name um and she had stage 4 colon cancer and she ended up dying so it's like a, a death memoir and she mm-hmm. was young and um we talked a lot on that episode about sort of the fighting of cancer and this like idea that the language of war and mm-hmm. all of that stuff is like how we approach it. But what Ann Boyer does in this book is I feel like she complicates that sort of, I feel like I've heard that before from other people, but I feel yeah. like she added a lot to the language of cancer. Mm-hmm. Like she was talking not just about fighting it, but like the things that are like you mess with the wrong bitch and like all of that kind of stuff, like kind of tongue in cheek. And like, 
I'm too hot for cancer. And like, (laughs) I like just put on your lipstick or go dance, dance it out. And like Mm -hmm. all this shit. And I think Amboyer says, except for, in my case, cancer picked the right bitch. (laughs) Thank you, Anne. But like that, like your attitude or that your mindset is actually relevant to the cancer. That's right. not to say that it might not be relevant to you, the per- the patient. Like you might feel like I do better going sure. to get chemo if I'm going in feeling really fucking positive, and that sure. might very well help you. But just because someone feels negative doesn't mean that the chemo doesn't work for them, right? Like that right. the science of it and then the emotional part of it are different. But we're being told and taught, and we're telling people you're only going to get through this if you're positive. Like you're only going to get through this if you smile and put on a wig and look hot and pretend like your boob doesn't have a tumor in it. And like all this stuff that's Mm -hmm. like, it's kind of sexist. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's so many things because it, it's one, just the sort of like the idea of, again, this um, very American rugged individualism, right? Like, You take it on by yourself. It is your illness. It's not a community thing, right? Like it's, and it's not a failure of institutions. It's not something that like we all need to pitch in and care for. It's like, no, if you fight it, if you, well, what if I'm someone like an Ann Boyer who is a single mother with a single income that needs, that still needs to provide and all of that. And like, what is what does that mean right like how do i find a village to be able to to care for me if everyone is thinking no the real thing is just how you approach it the, the mindset and then it's also because of the particulars of the disease it does major, the majority of people who are dealing with uh breast cancer just by numbers and the reporting sort of uh of who it is it's cis women not to say no one else ever experiences breast cancer. Obviously, it cuts across gender. Uh, but because it be, has become such a cis women's disease, mm-hmm. right, there is also the expectation of the continued performance of femininity throughout right. all of it, right? right? And so now you're not just charged with fighting the disease, but ensuring that you never fail in your womanhood right Right. that like that you maintain that because it is it is a direct attack on something that you know a secondary sex characteristic that's supposed to define womanhood like and so you you must you you gotta fight it because otherwise you're no longer a woman and then you will no longer be welcome into this club and we will no longer have to respect you in the you know very limited way that women are respected. And (laughs) even on top of that, I'm just thinking as you're saying, like there are other cancers that affect women and people with ovaries, vaginas, with Mm -hmm. those sex organs, like ovarian cancer or uterine cancer or vaginal cancer, but those cancers aren't treated in the same way. And I think part of it is because breasts are a physical outward attribute of women and femininity in a way Mm. that an ovary or a cervix isn't like you don't see my cervix every day when I walk down the street yeah and like there's no like there's not a sexualization of of a uterine lining but like the breast is a physical you know it's like 
oh, that's the thing that you see that makes a woman a woman. And right. so, and it, it is so interesting because men have, there are like men cancers, right? Like prostate cancer. You can get mm -hmm. it if you're not a man um, or if you're not a cis man, but we don't patronize men. We don't tell men who have prostate cancer to go ride a horse or something, <laughs> you know, like we're not like, hey, go smoke go a cigar, like do whatever cowboy. men do. Like, yeah. You know, like, yeah. and it's just like, it's just, it's so sexist. I, is there a term for when something, I guess like heteronormative sexist? Is that? Cis-sexist. Cis-sexist. Like it's so, yeah. you know, it just like plays into all the gender gendered bullshit like get a pink wig and like yeah. do your makeup and like let's go out and and like also the reconstruction part of it mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. like women who have mastectomies feel like they have to get their breasts put back on and yeah. some women probably want to and feel like sure. that is a part of their identity that they want but i also wonder if the pressure to do it if that wasn't there, how many women would go through additional surgeries to have their breasts reconfigured? Yeah. If you have, if, if part of your identity is wrapped up in like a, a sexist vision of what femininity and womanhood looks like, and, but you also then receive attention and validation for the meeting and performance of those values and then one aspect of that is taken away would you not want to reclaim it would you not want to right. like because you're you're fearful that then like you're going to be forgotten discarded you know all of right. these things and so you're, you're like no I need to hold on to some part of this because I will lose the sense of self that I've built here and that not only that I will be further devalued that right. I will be a woman with that that is not truly a woman because I lack this one physical characteristic and that you know that also lends itself to a number of ways in which like like I say cis sexist it's because we're defining womanhood by the existence of like round breast that right. we identify with like breastfeeding or right. but like also the sexualizing of the breast and saying that oh that's the only that's the path toward womanhood well if you are a person if you are a trans woman who has not gotten breast augmentation then you're not a true woman right like right. but even if you do then you're you're still not because the the, phys the other physical characteristics that we've said are only uh, the are the only definition of womanhood and so now you've got everyone in a tangle trying to right. like you'll go through this and, and and meet expectation but you're doing this in this particular instance to someone who has gone through a physical trauma right. in breast cancer right Right. Yeah. It's fucked up. It's totally fucked up. It's so up. fucked up. And I just want to say, because I, I don't, I'm not sure if what I said before sounds like I was saying something that I'm not saying. So I just want to be very clear. I'm not saying anything disparaging against any woman who decides to do anything to their body sure. and their breasts, whether they have cancer or not. That's not what my point is. My point is more that there is a pressure that is applied to women who maybe don't want to, but feel like they need to. But mm -hmm. if you want to, please do whatever the fuck you want with your own body. As long as it yeah. doesn't hurt someone else. I just want to be very clear. Um, 
because that's just I don't I don't have opinions about what people do in that way. <laughs> um, let's take a quick break and then we'll be back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I want to, we were kind of just before talking about the sexism of breast cancer. And one of the things that she talked about is sort of, and very, she very quickly kind of sprinkled some words over it was the racism Mm -hmm. of, especially the kind of breast cancer. She had this triple negative, which um, disproportionately affects black women. And Mm -hmm. there's two different parts of the book where she sort of, glosses over this and one part is where she talks about how single women are twice as likely to die from breast cancer as married women in all without any other factors being included but for me as a black woman I couldn't help but think that the singleness of black women is a factor in and of itself because Mm -hmm. black women are are the most likely to be single uh, of of women so I found that 
for her to kind of like say like without taking in any other factors i'm like yeah but even that sample size is going to be disproportionately black because black women make up the make up more uh single people and then later she talked about how um how part of the reason that she thinks that triple negative has the least uh, options for treatment and is because it disproportionately affects black women. Mm -hmm. And I found that to be interesting and I'm glad that she said that, but the two times that she kind of brought it up, I felt like she didn't really engage with that part of it. And of course that's not her experience, but I feel like other things she went deeper and I was sort of like, come on, Anne, like say it, just say it. No, it's one of the biggest disappointments of the book is that she very clearly has an understanding and an acknowledgement of the disproportionate impact on Black women, but refuses to sort of like engage it with the same intellectual rigor that she does the rest of her own experience. And, you know, you can, you'd be like, oh, but it is still the memoir form and so it's much about her experience and that's fine except that what what she's doing so much of is using the personal experience right. as a launch pad for an institutional critique exactly and when that institutional critique only bears glancing mention to the level of racism at play and like doesn't account for uh her her experience as a white woman uh, and the attendant privileges, like even as she's trying to like show us like, look, this is actual breast cancer. Like uh, this is the actual, or this is at least one narrative that doesn't fit into the mold of, uh, you know, the breast cancer narratives that have been trotted out and, and uh, praised uh publicly well it but it doesn't account for uh or doesn't doesn't really attempt to account for is that her narrative is still uh subject to and uh buttressed by her whiteness uh, and she doesn't really do enough work there uh to 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 feel like okay you've you've given all of your sort of intellectual weight to this question as well Right. And, and I think that like the omission of black women or Latinx women or or any other racial group, and I I would say also trans people, Mm -hmm. um, I think the, I think the choice to not include them, we have to consider that a choice that she made because she includes so much stuff that's outside of her own personal scope and experience. Mm -hmm. And, and she goes out of her way, you kind of in the hoax section to talk about other women, those other women's experience via the YouTube videos. And Mm -hmm. there's never really, I don't believe there might be one mention, but I'm pretty sure that, you know, when she's in the chemo room, there's never a mention of the racial breakdown or demographic of those Mm -hmm. people. There's no engagement with race. And when when she admits that her kind of cancer is most found in black women, to me, that's a choice, you know, Mm -hmm. like, it's not like she had to go reach out further than the kind of cancer that she had or reach out to anything outside of what she was experiencing. And, you know, it just, it's a bummer. (laughs) Yeah. It's, and it's a choice that, you know, 
seems to be not in line. I, I, what I can see in the decision making there is saying essentially, look, I I know that all of this exists and that I I would love to do all of that work, but there's also this primary mission that is the attack on uh, these these institutions and this narrative. Uh, and that I have to do the breaking of that narrative here and leave the rest to someone else that like, hopefully this book is sort of like the, right. just the, the, you know, the first shot in into that. And that like, this opens a space for the, the proliferation of more of these kinds of narratives rather right. than the accepted, uh, you know, non-profit corporatized uh, narratives of breast cancer survival. And so I can understand from the, from the craft perspective, the, in, in the sort of political mission of like doing the first shot mm-hmm. uh, to be able to do that. But what it then signals is uh, a lack of, or an unwillingness to, to consider that, those black women aren't necessarily going to get the same opportunity to do this kind right. of work and tell this kind of story. And also it, her, her experience of being seen as a victim or a survivor and all of those things that's directly related to the ways that black women aren't afforded those opportunities, mm-hmm. right. Aren't afforded the sympathy of being a cancer patient. You know, like when we see, Susan G. Komen, Walk for the Cure, like whatever. It's so rarely that there's a black woman who's the face of that. You know, it's usually some young, pretty blonde lady. And like, Mm -hmm. but she is directly in relationship to that, you know? And so I think that the choice to not include it, well, I understand exactly what you're saying is it's like not every memoir can do everything and not every book can do everything. And she's making space for someone else to do it. I do think that in the way that she interrogates the other institutions she has to interrogate the racism of it because it's clearly at play and she hints at it she kind of like coy coyly like throws it in and i don't know that people who are reading her book who aren't necessarily as interested in racism as as you and i obviously are are Mm. gonna be seeing those few sentences and being like ah you didn't yeah. do it, you know? Like, I think other people might be like, oh, that's interesting. Black women have breast cancer. And let me go back to the beautiful artwork in the Netherlands. Right. It's a missed opportunity because of who the audience, you know, right. is going to be is that, like, look, that the people that she's speaking to right now with this book are not going to... Are, are not as likely to tune in and pick up the book from the black woman who does right. exactly the same work that Ann Boyer is doing, but also does the critique of the racism of these institutions. Like they're not going to pick that up the same way. Like there's the hope uh, obviously that they would, but it's not going to land the same way as if, as if Ann Boyer was doing that work here, which is, is speaking to, she knows exactly who's going to pick this up. Mm-hmm. It's going to be ma- mostly white women who have uh, consumed the narratives of breast cancer looking for another one, right? right. Like looking right. for another hopeful memoir around right. like how this all works and like being like, oh, breast cancer warrior. And she is doing something deliberate in 
interrogating and excavating that narrative for all of its falsehoods and all of its, uh, you know, all of its vulturistic qualities, but missing the the racism where where it's like, okay, if you can do the rest of this for them, and you can do all you can do all of that work for them. Don't leave them without that aspect because, right. like, understand that this is going to be so shattering for them that they may not tune in the next time, especially if the person that's telling this story is a black woman who they're primed not to listen to anyway. Anyway, right. I was just thinking as you were talking about black women who have like famously had breast cancer. Mm. And aside from Audre Lorde, the only people that are really popping into my mind, and this is so sad, is like the mothers of professional athletes who they Mm. feature in October where it's like, oh, these like running backs because it's football Mm. season and baseball doesn't have that many black American players. Um, But it's like, it's that those are the people that pop into my head. And that's really troubling because when I think about like white celebrities, I mean, I can think of a few who have had breast cancer, like Julie Louis Louise Dreyfus, right? She had breast mm-hmm. cancer. And then, you know, we know that Angelina Jolie had the BRCA gene. And so she had preemptive yeah. surgery, I think prophylactic surgery. So it's just interesting because, you know, of course, it not only affects Black women disproportionately, and she says in the book that they are diagnosed less and die more, but also mm-hmm. that in, you know, in mainstream media entertainment circles where there's so much, you know, awareness being brought up it's like we're not seeing black women yeah yeah i mean audrey is the only example that she can bring up when she's situating herself in the sort of literary lineage right, right? like that's the right. only black woman example and like if again we're, we're we're being subject to the singular narrative and that exactly what you're saying it's not as if we don't know the statistics at hand but the face of breast cancer continues to be a white woman in part because of like a lot of the things that were we brought up earlier where it's like who is the, who is then the embodiment of societal's desired femininity it is right. going to be white women and if they are suffering then therefore it must be a problem but the people being diagnosed and dying from the most aggressive form of right. this breast cancer are disproportionately black women and yet there's no, until this book, really, like, I didn't even recognize, realize that that right. was the case. Me neither. Um, and so if, if, there's, if there's a potential, like, credit to Ann Boyer, for, because I didn't know that uh, until she wrote it, but there's the potential then for a further exploration. And I'm not saying that it's on Ann Boyer's shoulders to, to bear that. But there's there's plenty more that could have been done in this book for to address that and like to incorporate. I, I get it, it's memoir, but the incorporation. Uh, but she's also telling other people's stories. Right, right. In, it's in, memoir, but she's already broken the rule of of being. She can't hide behind that because of what else she does in the book. Yeah. You know, like if she really told like a straight up memoir, it's like I walked to the store and this is what I did. Then maybe I'd be like, mm-hmm. okay, I get it. But she's she's doing more than just memoir. Um, And this sort of ties into this conversation of racism, sexism, which is the part about care, where she talks about Mm -hmm. how the people who are required, who are employed to give care are so often 
underpaid because it's looked at as like women's work, but they're the people who are telling mm -hmm. you a joke while they're also, you know, trying to stick a needle in your arm and they're collecting all the data and they're doing the math and the science behind it while they're also like changing your bedpan and that, that there's so, like, it's about attention to detail and educating the patient and cleaning and all this stuff. And, you know, I, my husband is a doctor. And so I think a lot about nurses because mm. I recognize how much of his job is what we think is done by doctors is done by nurses and physicians yeah. assistants and other people not to disparage doctors. They do a lot of great stuff and they, yeah. you know, whatever. But I think so much of the credit is given to doctors and not nurses. And I just, I think about nurses all the time. And I think that this book, she really drives that home in such a clear way. And I mean, so many people who are in the care industry are people of color. Um, mm -hmm. so, I mean, in California, there's many Filipino uh, nurses. I think they're, like there's a, at least in the hospitals that I know and that my husband's worked in um, and, and a lot of black women and uh, Latina women. Um, and I just think it's interesting. I mean, it's, I'm not surprised, but it's, it's, yeah you know, they, they're paid the, they're paid worse and they do more work and they're not respected. And that's the other part of it. It's like, fine, don't pay me as much, but like, at least respect me. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Be nice. I remember, um, at the very beginning of, uh, I mean, maybe not the very beginning, but it was a, at the outset of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, I was on this thing discussing sort of, you know, I, what what the numbers were telling us or it was disproportionately black and Latinx and indigenous peoples that were contracting and then dying from uh, COVID-19. And I was having this discussion with this doctor in the UK and he's sort of trying to say, well, look, it's it ha there. We have to look at these different factors to be like, what's what's the difference and why people are dying and like having to look at like, I think so much of it was like about like vitamin D deficiency and all of this stuff. And then he was, he was trying to say that you look in within the hospitals, right? Like, why is it that the doctors aren't contracting the, the COVID at the same rate as the nurses? And it's like, well, one, they're in more contact with right. patients. <laughs> um, but if you're trying to say that there's some difference in the in the nurses it, it, the reason that more women of color are going into nursing than becoming doctors you have to look at all of the different structural barriers right. there in the ways in which nur uh, nurse and care work has been feminized uh, the the number of opportunities for even this low paying job but like better paying job than what what many uh people from these communities would experience and then why that would mean a disproportionate flood of women of color into this this profession and so it was just baffling to me to, right. for him to be like well there's got to be something wrong with them like genetically the yeah. like, you know? <laughs> that's i mean the way that people shit on nurses is just it yeah. is really horrible i i just Anybody listening, be nice to the nurses because truly they do everything and the doctors do like, I mean, no offense, husband, but nothing. <laughs> like I, I had twins. 
my husband's an OB. I had twins. He's not my doctor. Everyone yeah. don't ask, but <laughs> I had twins and my nurses were the fucking heroes. And my doctor yeah. was great, but like, you know, anyways, not to show, I, mean, I love, I love doctors. It's just that there's, there's the, just a yeah. separation for, for so many people. And like within the, the hospital itself where it's like, right. no, the nurses do the care work and, yes. the, and the doctors do the intellectual yeah, work. Yeah, they do like the medical, then, the medicine work. Right. The, and so yeah. therefore that's, that's more valued, not, not just because like, you think of it as having more value, but because of who is performing Who's that doing work. it and who decides what's valuable. Exactly. And the other thing that she talked about about care that I had truly never thought about, not even for one second, I had never had this we are not given any time off to care for anyone that we're not related to mm-hmm. and like yeah. directly related yeah. to like you don't get medical yeah. leave to take care of your aunt you no. get it for your mom or maybe your 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 spouse or your child but you don't get it for your sibling you can't take no. it for like you can't take it for your best friend you can't take it for and i think I think in a small, small way, I kind of had thought about this when it came to uh, in like 2008 when when the big issue of the Supreme Court of the time or, or in California mm-hmm. was Prop 8, but for, for gay marriage. Um, and I, I know that one of the reasons that it was important to people was because they wanted to be able to be in the room with their significant yeah. other during medicine and stuff. But I'd never thought about even like you can't take time off to take your partner to the hospital if they're not your husband or wife you know and like so that's the only way that I thought about it is was in that one context but in an even bigger context like you can't take time off to take your best friend or cousin or co-worker who lives alone and is disabled or whatever like there's no we know that I mean I don't even think we have to spend too much time on the American medical system because we all know that like health insurance and all that shit is fucked up and it's too expensive and like what a waste of time but this part of it this like we can't you can't even take care of people right like the most vulnerable people who are ill and alone there's no way to even help them if you too are not financial super financially stable if you Mm -hmm. have a job you know you have to choose between taking your next door neighbor who needs help to the doctor to get their covid vaccine whatever it is you have to choose between that and getting written up at work like yeah that shit's so fucked up yeah and and then it's incredibly fucked up and exactly what she's sort of pointing to in terms of like who dies the most from this and being single women who can, who uh, are diagnosed with uh, breast cancer is because there is no one who's able to care for them. There's no one that's able to show up and that such the primacy of, I mean, now we can say like uh, marriage across the board, but like it really truly still remains the sort of hetero marriage as the, the, the family unit, but then it, it's also the care unit. It, it's the only people that you're you're supposed to rely on are the two people that are in this single unit. And that like that the idea that all of that be foisted on one person's shoulders and then not account for anybody who's not in one of those particular unions or is right. single or what what have you. 
to say that no one's allowed to show up for you. Like, right. what is that? What is that message that you're right. saying? Like, no one is allowed to show up for you without great risk to their own uh, livelihood or so, just being wealthy. Like being yeah. able to, like, if you're not independently wealthy or able to be fine missing work, then if your friends aren't rich, basically you don't get help from your friends. Yeah. And then what you're saying is not just that, like, physically you'll continue to deteriorate because of a lack of just like basic care on that level, but that means an isolation that mm -hmm. means the furthering of depression and the anxiety that's going to be attendant with no matter what, you know, once you get that diagnosis, it means you don't have the emotional care that you need right. during this time because everyone, they, your people are scattered and you just don't have people in your immediate vicinity and no one's there to just talk to you and laugh and all of that right. stuff. Like what? Yeah. And like, because why? That's the thing. It's like, because I need to go to work and my boss needs to make as much money as possible. Yes. My employer, like, it's like, okay, but you know, if we go back to the Tressy Ezra thing, like mm -hmm. you're going to be disabled one day too. You're going to be yeah sick one day too you're gonna need help one day too and it's it's so fucked and like the thing that's even more fucked about it to me at least like as I look at as I selfishly look at myself is like I I never thought about it like the system mm -hmm. that's in place is so good at keeping us isolated and not relying and telling us like that we don't deserve mm -hmm. to have community that I I just never even thought about it it never crossed yeah. my mind and that's really horrible like, yeah. I think, like, the system is bad, but the fact that I've never even questioned it is even worse. Is it, I mean, it's not something that you really even think of until you're in that position, right? right? Like you, you just sort of, and we don't want to think of ourselves as ever having to be in that position. It goes right. back to what you're saying in terms of the, the distinction that we make between a healthy person and a sick person most of us are going to want to think of ourselves in, in the healthy person uh, category. Uh, and in that, we're never thinking about like, well, what if I become a sick person? Who would care for me? Right. Who, would, who would I have to be able to, to show up in that way? And not thinking about the legal fact that like you, a person that you care for would not be able to a person that you care for and cares for you would not be able to show up for you uh in the ways that you may need because they don't you don't have the right relationship to them you don't have the right legal relationship to them and that even if you did have a marriage to this person now you're asking them to perform all of those duties right all of those duties exactly yeah um, I, there's one more thing that I really want to touch on because I think it was something else that was like ugh, mind blowing for me, but it was when she was talking about the hoax of cancer and mm. like people pretending to have cancer so mm -hmm. that they can have sympathy. It reminded me of, you know, the author AJ Finn slash Dan Mallory, same person. He, he wrote mm -hmm. the women in the window, the one that just became the movie with Amy Adams. Anyways, oh. he lied about having brain cancer and all oh. this stuff. There's like a great, I think it's the New Yorker article. Oh, it came out yeah. a few years ago about him. Yeah. But it's just like, I mean, he's a white guy. And I kept thinking like, if you can't get ahead as a white guy in publishing, 
and he was an editor and all this. I'm like, you need to fake cancer to get sympathy. Like, then your shit's not that good, my guy. Like, you're white already guys, there. White guys are desperate for like <laughs> victim narratives. They really, truly are. They love like, it. They, they eat that shit. Really, yeah. <laughs> but I'm just like, look, AJ phone. Like, you're already. You already have a seat at the table. You're an editor and a major publisher. Like, any, anyways. Yeah. <laughs> he was, like, doing it while he was, like, at Oxford or something horrible. But just the the whole, like, the section where she talks about, um, I can only remember one person's name, Coop Dizzle. But where mm-hmm. she talks about the women with the, like, vlogs, like, the YouTube videos and, yeah. and the people in the comments being, like, you just need to drink alkaline water. And that, and the woman's, like, already dead. Yeah, commenting on these videos of women who are already dead from the cancer and the whole like holistic and 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 even the doctor side of it like the doctors being like take this chemotherapy drug and like they don't even Mm -hmm. know for sure and like we can't just accept that we don't know when it comes to treatment we can't just accept that it's ever evolving it has to be no this this supplement works or this chemo drug works and it doesn't always work. Like, no. and we don't know. And, and I, I don't know. It's, it was very, that part was very depressing. Yeah. It's the, the, the cockiness, like the mm-hmm. self-assuredness of all of the people, like, you know, to borrow sports metaphor as we all do at times, like all the people on the bench, just like thinking that they can, they can call mm-hmm. the plays because mm-hmm. they're like, oh yeah, sure. Like, I've never actually gone through this, but I know because I read something mm-hmm. on the internet one time and like, or like, because I adopt a holistic, you know, uh, ethos and, and diet and, and all of this stuff that like, I've never been sick. And it's just like, look, understand that that's not going to prevent it. Like you're not, right. that, that, that's not necessarily going to prevent it. Like, I hope for the best for you that that's not, that that's not going to be the case that you fall, that you become sick in this way. Um, but you don't know what these, these other people have done. You don't know like how they've lived their lives. They may have lived the most healthy life as possible, but right. be subject to environmental factors that then contributed to their cancer diagnosis and all of the, all of the different things that we find about the additives in our foods and like, right. like whatever right. it is that we, that we're not aware of whatever it may be. Um, but then there's an assuredness because there's again, like we were saying earlier, this sort of individualistic approach to it that mm-hmm. like, if you fix your behavior, then you can beat this. You can go about it. Know that that's like the spirit is within you, all of this stuff. And it's just like, well, what if we just like cared for the person when they were sick right. and gave them the things that they needed to be comfortable and then hope that we like that they come out on the other side of it. Like, right. What and if ex- we yeah. And accepted that people die from this thing and that you're dying from, from this cancer or from anything isn't a moral failure on you. No. Like they, it's not that you didn't try or you didn't want to live or that you didn't, that you were choosing death. It's none of those things. It's just that some people die and sometimes people have to die from this horrible cancer. And sometimes people have to die from an accident. And like, you would never say that someone who got in a car accident wanted to die or they didn't try hard enough. It's like, this is part of life. And we're so, so scared of it. And it's a horrible way to go. I mean, like, yeah. and I would want to do everything that I could to make my life as 
comfortable and easy as possible if I were to be going through through that. But like people need to have the support and the comfort and also the grace to feel like shit if they want to <laughs> like and the space, right. you know, and like doctors also need to have the humility to be like, I don't know. Yeah. This is the treatment that I've got right now. This is my best guess on how we can cure this thing. But like, you know, Dr. Baby didn't give her the best treatment. Love Dr. Baby. <laughs> Dr. Baby did not give her the best treatment. And it's not because Dr. Baby wasn't trying. It's because Dr. Baby doesn't know better than anyone else. And like, right. we're so obsessed with having to, to solve this problem. And it's like, we're not there yet, people. We're just not we're there not. yet. We're not. And like, it's just, yeah, it's so, I mean, that section was really difficult. And it, and that section also is where they had the surgery that they said should have worked. And then they gave it to a bunch of women and then a lot of them got really, really sick and it didn't work at all. And then the doctor, mm -hmm. I think in South Africa was like, oh yeah, about that. <laughs> and they were like, that's a hoax. Sorry. <laughs> okay. We're basically out of time, but before we do the last little bit, was there anything else that you wanted to touch on or talk about that we didn't get to? No, I think we, I think we got I, it. I think we did pretty good. I, there might be a few things we forgot, but I feel like we, there's a lot. Yeah. Um, we didn't really talk about the art, but honestly, that was my least favorite part. No. <laughs> like, I don't know, wasn't interesting, but I did yeah. look up a lot of the pictures. Um, I'm not a critic, so. <laughs> yeah, I was like, that's, that looks sad. Uh, <laughs> um, okay, so we always kind of end around the title and the cover. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know which cover you had. I had the paperback with the snake yeah. on it. Okay, it's there's the another. The yeah. yeah. Oh, because I saw another one that was different. Um, because oh. so so the title of mine is the Undying, and when I looked it up on the internet, one of the subtitles is a meditation on modern illness, but the mm -hmm. other subtitle I saw is the Undying, and then it's all these words down the side: the Undying, yeah. pain, vulnerability, mortality, medicine, art, blah blah blah. And I thought that was really interesting that there are different titles. Um, does yours have the Pulitzer sticker on it or no? It does not have the Pulitzer sticker. Okay. I got it before. Before it, that. Yeah. Because, um, yeah, I was, I definitely was like, oh, there's two different subtitles and that's a very interesting choice. I didn't realize that because I, I hadn't seen the new subtitle because I, I it, look, it took me a long time to realize all of these words on here were the subtitles. Yes, same, 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 same. <laughs> um, I, I have seen that, that before where it's sort of like, uh, the book will come out in the hardcover uh, with one subtitle and then they change the subtitle for the paperback, maybe thinking that like people didn't get the first one the first right. time, that, like there, there's more clarity the second time around and that like that's part of like the failure of a book and maybe if it didn't oh, sell, if people thought it was going to sell or whatever. Um I've seen that some or some like changing it to be a little more provocative because mm. like the first time around it didn't, you, but I think that that's, Probably my guess on this one would be that it just needed to be a little more concise because people I didn't think, understand. Oh, I think the this. one that I found was the first one, oh. but I don't know. I only thought that because I have the paperback, but you're telling me, I don't know. Maybe it was no, like the is, British edition. I don't know. I was looking possible. at, I, on bookshop.org, it's the long subtitle, but when I went on Amazon, they had a shorter subtitle for a hardcover. Mm. So maybe that was the British. I have no idea. Yeah. Um, but I do like the title, The Undying, because at first I didn't mm -hmm. understand it. But towards the end of the book, she said, now that I started my process of undying, and it made yeah. sense because I was thinking of it as like the undying, but mm. she's saying it like the undying. 
No, I was sorry. I was thinking of it as the undying, but she's talking about it's the undying. No, I can't. I'm doing it wrong. Basically, I was thinking of it as like people who are undying, but she was talking about the process. She was talking about the verb of undying. And I was thinking of the noun of undying. Of undying. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, yeah. But it's just like the, the idea of things like being like, oh, yeah, I had cancer and I was dying. Mm-hmm. It got cured to the extent that it can be cured. And now I'm living a life after that. Like I must be undying. Yes, like that's right. You did it right. Undying. It's the un. <laughs> yeah. I And I thought that I didn't, I hadn't thought about it in that way until I got to the end of the book where she was like, and now that I'm undying. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm so dumb. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, but I do like the cover with the syringe yeah, and the snake and the like different amounts being the different words on the like scale, like the measuring inches or whatever. I'm really into a book cover that's sort of just giving me what the book is. Yes. Like, I don't want it to be too abstract or like, I just want to, I want to know what it is that I'm getting into. And like, here it is, The Undying by Ann Boyer. And then here we have all like this as the subtitle, like giving me exactly what I, what, what the book has encapsulated here and the artwork, you know, you can, interpret all of these different ways but really like you're looking at a syringe that you associate with uh, that you'll associate with the medicine world but you can also associate with drug use um but like this snake coiled around it lets me know that there's something fucked up about like what's happening that they, right. you know i need to to be wary of that i need to examine further before like diving into what i think is supposed to be helpful and the medicine in medicine the snake is like the emblem of medicine. Mm. I can't remember where it comes from, but they're like the snake is associated with like doctors. Oh. Um, so like a lot of things will have like snakes on it for medicine. Mm. Um, so I think it's a nod to that too. But yeah, I think the cover is really great. It's very straightforward. It's not, it's not like, it's not a wow cover that I would necessarily grab off the shelf mm-hmm. for it. But when I saw it, I was like, cause again, I bought this book basically knowing nothing. And I was like, Oh, okay. We're going to talk about medicine. Like yeah. I was like, okay, I know what's up. Um, yeah. I think, I think that's it. Anything else? No, just, this was wonderful to talk about it. <laughs> this was <laughs> so it. great. Yeah. Thank you for talking with me about it. And everyone at home, you can get Michael's books, Invisible Man Got the Whole World Watching, and Stakes is High. Um, They're out in the world. Michael has a podcast called Open Forum, which is out in the world now too. Subscribe, rate, and review. Leave those reviews. We need those reviews, people. Um, And... Everything we talked about will be in the show notes. I don't know. I feel like yeah. we did. I feel like this was a very successful episode. We did all the things. I feel very like <laughs> I have nothing else to say. I feel great. Thank you, Tracy, so much for Thank having you. me. You're welcome anytime, anytime. Yeah. Um, and everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you all so much for listening. And thank you to Michael for being my guest. Okay, now it's time for our July book club pick. It is The Best We Could Do by T. Bowie. It is our first ever graphic novel, and we will discuss the book on the podcast on July 28th. Tune in next week to find out who our guest will be. 
Please make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Sebastian Alcala is our sound editor and producer. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagiragis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 